Palm Sunday is the yearly reminder for me that God is not a God who operates in response to my expectations. Every year on Palm Sunday, I remind our church that people shouting Hosanna were shouting a military king-like chant to the Messiah who they believed was finally going to overthrow the Roman Empire and set the people of God free. And the main reason why the crowd grew in so much confidence during this time of Jesus' life is because it wasn't that long ago that in the city of Bethany, Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave. And when Jesus did that, he had a huge following, and there was a lot of buzz around his ministry for the three and a half years that he was going around Jerusalem and going around the northern side of Israel and doing miracles and preaching and teaching his way of life that was so different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees and interpreting the law in such a way that's actually able to be participated in by common people. I mean, it's amazing what Jesus brought to the table. But when he raises Lazarus from the dead, they're like, king, king him. Like, let, let's crown him, and Romans, good luck handling a guy who's got power over the grave. Here he comes. Don't know why he's riding a donkey, because you're supposed to be riding like a triumphant horse, but it's okay. Donkey symbolizing his humility. And they're shouting, Hosanna, save us now. And on Jesus' mind is Calvary. They're thinking about being delivered from their problems and their government that's so oppressive. And Jesus is thinking about delivering humanity from the power of the evil one and death itself. And so Jesus, every year on Palm Sunday, I remind us, Jesus is more than willing to disappoint your immediate expectations in order to ultimately exceed them. And there are people here, all kind of seasons of life, who that's exactly what this year has been for you. Disappointed expectations. Things you want answers from God about, things that you're wrestling with individually, and trust me, I've got them as well. But every year when we get to Palm Sunday and the page turns to this moment, I remind myself, God's not thinking what I'm thinking. And even a dead end, even a bitter ending, even a funeral, even the end of a relationship, even a divorce, even cancer itself, even the things that we are the most afraid of, I'm telling you, God is undefeated at disappointing our immediate expectations in order to ultimately exceed them. But today, I don't just want to live in Palm Sunday. I want to live in Thursday night and Friday morning. Did you know that Thursday before Jesus died is a holiday? It's called Maundy Thursday, which is a weird word. Can you look at somebody next to you and say Maundy? Mon See, it feels weird. You're like, I don't even know how that's spelled. And it's M-A-U-N-D-Y. Most of us have never heard of it. And it's when we remember the installation of the Eucharist. The Lord's Supper, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. And so we're going to do a one-shot message today simply called the body and the blood. The body and the blood. We're going to talk about communion, and we're going to talk about the price Jesus paid for our sins to be forgiven and our relationship with God to be restored and our security to be kept eternally. The body and the blood of Jesus. So I have this continual frustration in my relationship with God, but not just related to spiritual things. It's a continual frustration as I've gotten older and started to understand myself emotionally better. It's a frustration where the situations I'm in in real time don't always align with the emotions that I'm feeling. 
I, don't, I could be the only one, and you're like, you're a crazy person, and you need counseling, which is true, and actually true about all of us if we'll get honest enough. Um, but I've noticed in my life, I'll be going through something and be going, man, in that moment, like, I'll attend a funeral and feel so numb, feel nothing. And it's something that's so tragic and so difficult, and I'm going, man, why can't I really feel what's happening right in front of me? And then that night, or a day later, or two days later, all of a sudden, it's like that emotion arrived. And when I was physically there, I was like kind of there. And then all of a sudden the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings and all the clarity of what was, whoa, now, and then I'm suddenly I'm feeling it and I need to get in a room to actually process and let those emotions out. As human beings, one of the things that gets disoriented by sin, it's not just your will and your capacity to do things that are against the will of God. It's the fact that our emotions remain all over the place by how overstimulated and all over the place our heart's affections can be. And so you'll be going through life in your relationship with God and find it so complicated and so frustrating to actually make your emotions match your devotion to God. And I, I just have this thing where I'm like, God, if I could feel everything that I need to be feeling reading the scriptures and reading the story and remembering these events, if there was some kind of a machine that could just flip a switch and make me go there, I would be so down. But Lord, can you do in me something to connect my senses to what's real spiritually. And Jesus initiates the Lord's Supper as a physical reminder. My body broken for you. My blood shed for you. If I have one prayer for our church on Holy Week, it is this. God, do not let these stories get stuck in history. Let us in real time, in real situations, feel and sense and cry, and rejoice, and shout, and mourn, and go through the process of letting what you did on this week, 2,000 years ago, collide with what we're doing in our lives right now. And I want, God, I want it to be real as the breath in my lungs. I want it to be as tangible as my skin. And Jesus says, when you take of my body and you take of my blood, that's the invitation. And so when we look to the word of God, I am awestruck at what God has revealed to me for this moment. I believe that something mystical and equally true happens when we take communion. And I'm not going to get weird on you. I know we come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And some of you are like, is he going to get a sword out? And are we going to do that? No, no. <laughs> But when we're talking about the body and the blood, we are talking about more than the cracker and the shot of juice that you have beneath your seat. Or if you didn't get one, you're going to get one by the end of this. So do not fear. But let's read about the night before Jesus died and let these realities collide with our own. If you brought your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up on Palm Sunday. Hold it up in the lobby. All of our locations, hold them up. You guys are ready to roll. I don't feel like it's fitting on Holy Week to do a single person's Bible drill, but I just need to tell y'all, hold them up high. Last night at the 6 p.m., I said, if you're here and you got engaged this weekend because of the Bible drill, stand up. And I was aware of two couples who got engaged the same weekend who met during the Bible drill. So they stood up. And then another couple right over here stands up. And we're like, whoa, when did you get engaged? Hold them up. And, and, and we're like, when did you get engaged? And they were like, just now, like right before this service. They were dead serious. And we're, and I, I, so at the six, I did an altar call. Anybody else want to get engaged? Like, it's crazy. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. 
That really happened. I lost my mind, by the way, last week at the 6 p.m. I, I, I was like staggering for the rest of that sermon. I could not believe my eyes. Luke chapter 22. We're going to read a few verses in Luke, starting in verse 14. And then, if you are able, and this is only for the experts in the room, I want you to get to Luke 22, mark your spot there, and then I want you to have a finger in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, and that might take you some time, don't worry, I've got some explaining to do for why we're doing that. Whenever you read Luke and Acts, which are written by the same person, Luke, who was a physician, very good at creating detail and dialogue around the person of Jesus because of his attention to detail. He, he has kind of the most interviews done and the most eyewitness accounts compiled together of the gospel account of Jesus' life and the account of the early church after Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. So what you have in Luke is a constant theme, and the theme is the continued redemptive story from Old Testament to New Testament. Luke, in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, is always reaching back to Israel. He's always reaching back to the covenants with Abraham, with, with Jacob, with Moses. He's reaching back because he's connecting. Jesus did not come to do a, a brand new thing as much as he came to join up in the story God has been writing from the beginning. So you got a finger in Jeremiah 31, but you're also focused on Luke chapter 22, and you'll see why in just one second. Luke chapter 22, verse 14, if you're there, say I'm there. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes." A lot of times we skip over the fact that the Last Supper happened in connection to Passover, and we skip over this and get straight to, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me, this is my blood shed for you, drink this in remembrance of me. What's up with Jesus marking the last meal of his life, saying that I have eagerly desired to have this Passover meal with you, and I'm not going to have it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God? That's a really complicated statement. If you don't know anything about Passover, the people of God in the book of Exodus, Israel, are enslaved to Egypt, and God does all kind of plagues to deliver them under the leadership of Moses from the hand of Pharaoh. The last, most emphatic one is the Passover, where God warns Egypt and says, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, this is like, I know there's been frogs and there's been all kind of weird stuff that's been happening, but this is like your last shot. God is coming. And there will be an angel who takes out the firstborn son of every household in Egypt if you do not let us go. Pharaoh hardens his heart, says no. Moses goes back to his people and says, God says we will be passed over by the angel of death if and only if there is the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of our homes. And on that night, every firstborn son in Egypt dies And every house of Israel is spared that had the blood on the door. What is that symbolic of? That's symbolic of our salvation. That the blood of Jesus covers the heart of a believer where the wrath that was due you and due me for sin is passed over by God. But at this point in the story, they don't know that. And Jesus says, the Passover doesn't find its fulfillment until we're eating together in the kingdom of God. Well, I've never heard that 
Because when I think of the Passover being fulfilled, I think of Jesus' blood being shed on Good Friday. But according to Jesus, the Passover is not fully coming until we get to celebrate it with every tribe and tongue and nation in heaven around a table. The scene of Jesus' final moment with his disciples where he's pouring into all of them before Judas betrays him is a scene of communion together. And Jesus is going, you want to get a picture for what this is all about? This is all about the people of God reclining together around a table and an environment of communion and love being what we enjoy for all of eternity. I'm not saying it's one big meal. Don't get too excited. There will be a lot of meals. There'll be other things too. But Jesus is giving us a glimpse of heaven and he's taking us back just like Luke will do all the time. Take us back to what happened in Israel and fast forward to this moment. But now he's going, we're not just going back to the Passover. We're going forward and I'm going to introduce something new. Verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Once again, I think we can become overfamiliar with this story. I'm going to read that again just to let it land. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The command of Jesus at the Last Supper to remember his sacrifice through the taking of this meal is the most instrumental command that defined the practices and the spread of the early church. That's a bold statement, so I'm going to say it again. The command of Jesus to take of the bread and the wine and remember his sacrifice is the most instrumental command obeyed that leads to the inception and the spread of the early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, what does it say? They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. First one. There's a reason why that's first. What are they doing? They're getting together, they're praying. They're experiencing life together, the apostles teaching, miracles, they're functioning as a church. But they took literally, Jesus said, take this bread, take this cup, and remember what I do. And let's keep in mind, they don't have the canon of 66 books to pick up and go, okay, what are we reading this week? They got the Old Testament, they got scrolls, and they got teachers. Trust me, that's important. But that's not the first thing listed. They got together and broke bread. Most of them illiterate and having no way of reading a Bible of their own, this is the way the presence of God was tasted and seen by the church that we stand on 2,000 years later. This is more than a cracker and a shot. This is communion. This is union with Jesus. And part of the reason why him saying that doesn't land on us with the same weight it would have landed on a Jewish person 2,000 years ago is this little phrase in there, new covenant. Did you notice that? This is the new covenant. That word, covenant, massive. You read the story of God through the Old Testament, and you see that word covenant pop up again and again and again. And it's the way that God comes into an agreement with his people, but it's so much more binding than a contract. It is binding unto death. 
that God himself puts himself on the line every time he makes a covenant and says, should you break your end of this deal, I will be broken myself. There's so much more detail I could go into about covenant there, but I just got to fly over it on the surface because the most prominent mention of that phrase, new covenant, is from Jeremiah chapter 31. So if you're in Jeremiah 31, now you want to flip back there. Jeremiah 31, go to verse 31. This is a prophecy when the people of God are taken captive in Babylon. Remember Daniel? Remember children of revival? We were just there. That's the context. Here's what Jeremiah prophesied in his day and what the people of God are holding on to as Jesus says, here it is, the new covenant. Jeremiah said this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So there's a Passover right there. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God is saying there's a day coming in the future where we're going to do something different. It's going to be a covenant, but it's going to be new. It's not going to be like that one with the people when they were unfaithful to me and I led them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Well, what's going to be different about it? Is it going to be worse or is it going to be better? Read the next part. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is a covenant of minds and hearts. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No, this is, this is such, I had a seminary professor who's like, no one appreciates everything that God is saying in this one line right here. He would always freak out about this line. No one will teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because know the Lord was like a saying among the people of God in the Old Testament. Hey, know the Lord. It means like, make sure it's your intellectual pursuit to know him. Like whatever you gotta do to put yourself in a head space, in a heart space to know him, to actually get yourself to a level of connection with God. Hey, know the Lord. And he's going, that saying, done with, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. No, it's not know the Lord. It's you are known and he is known by you. Communion is our remembrance and recognition that it is done. He is here. And we can allow our emotions and our thoughts to align with the person of Jesus. And I, I, I don't know accurately with the English language how to explain what's happening when the church comes together to take communion. But I'm going to take a shot at it. Communion was supposed to be the installation of the most unifying act of the church. And it's, what's the enemy? It's the single most divisive thing in the church. How to take communion. And Jesus is going, I want everybody together at a table. 
And we're going, well, is it his literal body or is it, is it like just theoretical, like symbolic? Is it, do we have to say a certain set of words? In fact, sometimes, and some of you show your hand what background you are denominationally, sometimes we take communion and some of you will come up to me and go, you didn't say this exact blessing that I'm used to being said. And it's fine. Like, I'm fine. There's a lot of things coming to this church that already made me uncomfortable. But, but that, that was kind of the end all be all. And I'm like, I respectfully, I, I receive that. I understand that. Because we've gotten so good at dividing over how to take communion. My dad grew up Roman Catholic, so every time we would go up north to visit our family in Philadelphia, we would go to Mass. And, and, and we would, I, myself and my brothers and my mom would, would do the, you know, the, I'm not taking communion thing. Some of y'all who ne- who've never been to a Catholic Mass, you're like, what is this? Um, it's the opposite of this. And, and, and so as my dad became Protestant, he had to do this instead of doing the crucifix symbol. But the Roman Catholic tradition teaches that when a priest blesses the elements of communion, the bread becomes the literal body of Christ, and the wine or juice becomes the literal blood of Jesus. And there's something mystical about that in there, and it's led to a lot of things throughout church history because they would have bread left over, and we're like, what are we going to do with Jesus' body? Do we throw it away? Do we all eat it? Like, that's actually a real thing in councils of the church. If you grew up on a more Lutheran side or different streams of the church, it's like a really serious thing with communion where we don't believe it's the literal body and blood, but something crazy happens when the priest blesses it. If you grew up Methodist, like I said, they might have gotten a sword out and and put the elements in front of you and said a certain thing. Now, I didn't grow up in the Roman Catholic church, and I also didn't grow up on my mom's side of things because my mom's family was like Church of God crazy, snakes and all that. And um, so my parents decided that halfway between Catholic and crazy was Southern Baptist. And so <laughs> I, I grew up like many of you with, with the like fancy wooden plate pass where it was like, I'm so hungry and I could eat all of those. And, uh, and, but I'll just take one. And I, I used to have, as a second grader, I used to fantasize in church about what if the usher said, you can have it all. Like I, cause I was so hungry in church. And so it's like, it, I would smell the elements and it's passing by me. And, and we do something different or, or something similar to a Baptist understanding of that. But what we're trying to do in communion is be faithful to what Jesus was laying out. And I think it's interesting that when Jesus initiates communion, it's less an instructional manual and more about the heart of the person receiving it. Jesus doesn't stop and go, here's exactly how I want you to do this. But he talks about getting your heart and your mind in a state of remembrance of what has been accomplished for you. Now, passages like 1 Corinthians give us way more of an insight on, hey, this is a disrespectful way of taking communion because in the first century they were doing it as these big meals. And so rich people were able to bring a bunch of wine and a bunch of bread and poor people weren't weren't able to bring anything. So it became just an opportunity for the rich to flaunt their wealth. And Paul is like, what are you doing? There are some people in your church who have died because of the way y'all are taking communion. What you need to do is eat food at home. Communion is never supposed to be a meal that you go, I'm hungry physically, let me get full. It's supposed to be a meal where your spiritual senses are open to the presence of God. And the symbolism, whether it's wine or juice, whether it's bread or a cracker, the symbolism of those elements, something happens where the presence of Jesus is on display through the gathered church. Paul also says, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's, it's inferred in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that you should be taking communion when you come together as a church. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm okay in individual moments if a community group asks the leaders of the church, like, hey, we want to do this at this event. But I, I don't believe that families need to be once a week getting together, taking communion, just on their own time, doing their own thing. It's pretty clear that when the church gathers together, now for them in the first century, 
This was their meal time. So it was all one big thing. For us, we're gathered together. There's no way we're turning this into a big meal with tables. We can barely fit you into the chairs where you're already crammed in like sardines as it is. So, so, so the practice is we come together and with a heart that's open to the realities being illustrated, we experience more of God. So I want to talk about the, blo- the body and the blood of Jesus, and I want to set the stage. And we're going to take communion, and we're going to believe that the presence of Jesus is on display in this place. And I have no idea what God's going to do. But I know that through this practice, the presence of God becomes tangible. That's why we're getting more serious about communion. That's why we've been taking it once a week. That's why there's communion stations built in to our auditorium at Hamilton Road. We are that serious about this reality. It doesn't mean we'll do it every week, all the time. But we're getting really serious about these two things. Number one, Jesus' body was broken and crushed for our healing. Jesus' body was broken and crushed for our healing. Healing is restoring a physical body back to the original intention and design for which it was created. That's what healing is. Something's injured, if you're sick, that's a deviation from the design of the creator. Jesus is crushed and broken for our healing. Because Jesus' body, in the prime of his life, was taken from him, your body will be preserved to perfect healing for all of eternity because of the body of Jesus broken for you. Let, just let that sink in for a second. This is a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. You need to read this on Friday. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' physical body, 33, maybe 34 years old. It's just kind of ironic that this year I'm 33, so I'm like reading the story very different and going, whole life in front of me, physical health, as much as I can know myself, restored. Jesus takes his body as an offering in your place. And whatever we have to do to get our hearts and minds around this reality and get out of apathy and get out of being numb, we have to do it. There's a song that Hillsong United released either yesterday or the day before. It's called Blown Away. And yesterday, driving in my car, listened to this song, describes the simple reality of the cross in the most incredible poignant language I have heard a musician put it together. I don't care what your opinions about Hillsong are, by the way. Listen to the song. And I want to invite our church family, if you have time this week, get that song, get alone with God, bring some tissues, and take yourself there. We have to go back there. And we have to be willing in our minds to go, the perfect son of God, him who knew no sin, Absolutely nothing wrong with him. Every situation in his life, all he had ever done 
was extend mercy and kindness and miracles and a new version of being human that the world had never seen before. And our response to his kindness and his extension of love and mercy is to shout out for a criminal, a murderer, and a thief to be released instead of the perfect son of God. And as he is beaten and mocked and flogged and forced to carry his own cross up on a hill, every lashing and every part of his body is the substitute if you are in Christ so that you can know your body will live forever in heaven and God is not waiting to unleash wrath on you. Because the wrath of God went out, lifted up, his body totally frail from the beating he's taken, lifted up like Moses lifted the snake in front of the people for all to behold the naked son of God in the ultimate position of humility and nothingness, unrecognizable to those who loved him. For six hours, bleeds, shouts, and dies. May our spiritual senses be in tune with four simple words. Christ crucified for me. It's for you. It's for me. By his wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know that word iniquity is not a word that means sin. It means bent. It comes from the word inclined. It means that you have certain inclinations in you as a human being towards sin. Just being born as a human being, you are inclined toward evil. You are inclined toward rebellion. You are inclined toward scorning the heart of God. And God lays on him, presses on him. Think about Gethsemane. What does Gethsemane mean? It means place of pressing, where Jesus is sweating drops of blood. He, he presses on him the iniquity of us all. So because the body was crushed and broken, Mine never will be, and neither will yours. Oh, it'll expire, and it'll become frail. And if Jesus doesn't return, you will breathe your last, but that is not the end. And your body is restored to perfect healing forever and ever. So when you taste that bread or that cracker, and it goes into your stomach, your spiritual senses are going, his body for mine. If we can just get in tune with what this book says, with what our songs are singing, with what we say we believe, church, oh my goodness, how can we walk away the same? This is, this is what we have the opportunity to do every Sunday when we come together. That's communion. That's the reality. His body for mine. And it doesn't stop there. Number two, Jesus' blood was poured out for our purity. Jesus' blood was poured out for our purity. Colossians says that the people of God are pure and blameless in his sight. 
There's not a charge against God's people. There's not a blemish. They have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. The imagery we have in the New Testament is the imagery of a bride being presented to her groom. I was at a wedding yesterday where bride's walking down the aisle. It's always the best moment, not just because of the bride's beauty, but because of the groom's face. And the groom is receiving, this is my spotless, pure bride. And what you get in that moment is you get a picture of how we will be received in heaven. But we are received white as snow because his blood bled crimson red. Now I think when you think about the Old Testament, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews goes on to tell us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins. Here's why. Because it can't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. So, so they had a system of the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament that was just a shadow of what Jesus was going to bring to the table. But here's what slaughtering animals and following the practices of the Old Testament could never do. It could never cleanse the inner conscience of men and women who know that they're guilty. Watch what Hebrews 10 says right after the author quotes Jeremiah 31. This is right after that passage about, he uses that to remind us of the new covenant and it says this, therefore brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We are washed from the guilt of our own conscience and we are given, here's the invitation of communion, an opportunity to come before God with two things, a sincere heart and full assurance. A sincere heart is one that genuinely wants God. When you come to the table and you come to take up the blood of Jesus, your response to the, the physical shedding of the life of the Son of God is a sincerity of I love you, I want to know you, thank you, Jesus. The only, the only rightful response to someone who understands what Jesus has done is gratitude. Belief, belief is almost automatic. So when you think about unbelief being the thing that keeps you from God, unbelief is really ingratitude. That's the argument of Hebrews, by the way. If you persist in unbelief, you're really persisting in ingratitude, and that is why you will be separated from God forever. But the grateful, the sincere, the humble come to the table and go, it couldn't happen any other way. So I'm here with a sincere heart. You know what else I'm here with? Full assurance. We have confidence. Confide with faith. We come before the throne room of God, the most holy place, the place that the people of Israel would have been mortified that there are people in this room thinking they can just waltz into the most holy place. You go in there and you're not the high priest, you drop dead for your sin. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying the curtain fell, his body stands in the way and then removes the barrier 
And now we are ushered in by what? By the blood of Jesus. And as long as the umbrella of that covering, that word sprinkle is not a word for a little bit of blood. It means waterfall. I'm under the blood. And so when I come in here, I'm not coming with anything of me, but because I'm covered, just like the doors in Israel are covered by the blood of the lamb, I'm covered by the one who shed it all. And I can be here and you're not mad. You're glad you're the one who invited me and initiated it. As crazy as this sounds, if God had to do it again for you, he would. This is insane. This is the relationship with God we've been invited into. And this every time we take up of the bread and the juice, this is what we're remembering, the body and the blood. I talked to somebody from our church family this week who loves that we're taking communion more and he was like, I love that we're doing it and and I know it's not easy to fit it in every Sunday but I love that at least we're trying but he was like, a lot of times it's too short for me. I need a little more time just to reflect on the body and the blood. We're gonna give you that right now. In fact, if you wanna go ahead and get out your set, you can do that at all of our locations. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand right where you are and uh, if our host team could stand and find some of these people, they're a little bit spread out throughout the room. They will bring them to you. We got a couple up here. Just keep, keep holding it up, they'll see you, I promise. Don't wanna rush this moment, I wanna make sure we set this up well and we enter into the presence of God. This is a long moment for reflection intentionally. A couple more in the uh, back corner over here. And we want to give you a chance before this crazy week begins that you could waste on things that our world misses Easter so bad. Easter is just not about your pastels and your family picture. It's just not. This is a moment for you to ready your heart and for you to repent. And you know what else we're going to do? If you want to come up here and turn this into like an altar that you bow before, you can do that. Husbands, we always encourage you to pray over your wives during this time and to actually take a moment just to get in the presence of God. But I feel like for us to celebrate next Sunday at the arena, we gotta mourn a little bit. You can't celebrate a resurrection unless you acknowledge a crucifixion. So let's go to the foot of the cross. Let's remember the bloodshed. And you know what else I want us to do? I want us praying for those who are still lost in their sin. We have never been entrusted with more people who are on the edge of making a decision to follow Jesus than we will be next Sunday. And I don't feel good for us as a church entering into that moment without a moment like this, to just be stunned at the grace of God. Take this time, band will come up here and transition us in just one second, but take this time on your own, take communion, the body and the blood.